Hi, I'm Michiel de Hoog. I write about sports for The Correspondent, and you're going to listen to a conversation I had with the writer Michael Lewis, the author of Moneyball, The Big Short, and Liar's Poker. We talked about the pandemic, about which he's going to write a new book. We talked about how the current corona crisis may help Americans reappreciate the role of a functioning government. And we talked about the need for compelling characters in his book and how he hunts the world for characters, as he puts it himself. Lastly, we also talked about the second season of his podcast, Against the Rules, which is about coaching and what he learned about the art of coaching himself. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. So where are you? In Utrecht. You're in Utrecht. So that's what I see behind you. Is it actual, an actual neighborhood in Utrecht? Uh, correct, yes. Yeah. Uh, our small, tiny uh, po post stand garden. Yeah. Mm -hmm. are, you, are you under any kind of lockdown? Uh, I, yes, so in, in the sense that we cannot, so my children cannot get, go to school except for two days now since, uh, since two weeks. Um, we cannot go to, to our offices uh, except if you are a vital service, so called. And, uh, are, so are the streets kind of empty? Uh, yes, so I, I, took a, I took a walk through the, uh, the, the, the city center today with a football player who, who just quit playing football. Oh. Uh, fun story, by the way, but, uh, but there was no one. Yeah, yeah. So, and is, is, is everybody who's out wearing masks? Uh, not too many people here. That's actually just a, a, a big debate going on. Um, but we are, so, so when, um, uh, so there's, a, there's a, a loosening of the lockdown coming. And then when we use, for example, when we have to use public transport, we have to use masks. So that is, okay. uh, that is what they want. Yeah. If you, if you go to the grocery store, are you expected to wear a mask? No, you're not. No. But, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, people do. You, you, but you know, small minority. You know, yeah. right? You know what's happened here. It's become. Uh, it's it's in the last week become the subject of hostility. So people who wear masks in places that are right wing, like small towns in Texas, or in fact, I have a friend who's in Oregon in a very conservative town, and he wore put a mask on to go to the grocery store, and people yelled at him for wearing a mask. Why? You're a pussy. We don't need any more pussies around here. <laughs> oh, right. I've read that. Yes. <laughs> or you're just you're spreading fear and anxiety by wearing the mask. The flip side of this is here, like in Berkeley. If you don't wear a mask, you're ostracized. It's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. There, it hasn't been politicized. Where you are, it's not a political question. It, no, you're not, not really. Signaling, no, it's a practical thing. Yes. This signaling of... It's really become a peculiarly American thing, how everything gets turned into a signal of your political identity. We're just 10 years behind you, right? So that's how it always goes. I hope so, not. Yeah, I hope well, not. I, we hope to learn from you then, yeah. <laughs> um, to prevent it, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so I want you to be honest when I ask you this question. Sure. Has the, the last two months been fun or miserable for you? I would say it's a slight positive, actually. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I'm gonna, I'm gonna admit this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, me too. I mean, you know, there's the abstract horror of what's going on, but in day-to-day -day life, it's actually been. I mean, I wouldn't want it to go on forever, but if it, if we could have pandemic rules for like two months a year, where two months a year you're not allowed to travel, two months a year your children have to be home with you, uh -huh. you know, two months a year life gets very simple. It, it gets rid of all this noise. Right. That otherwise sort of clutters your head and your life. Um, uh -huh. There's so many things that I would have done in these two or three months that I didn't really want to do, but that I kind of had to do. So it was some, it was kind of social obligation, and mm -hmm. it all just fell away. And it's really <laughs> a nice thing if you could have that without the death and the illness. There's there, that. Yes. <laughs> there, there's that. There's that. Do you know anybody who has had the virus or anybody who's died? And no, n not really. Just just some people I know over social media, but 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 not in my direct vicinity uh, or anything. No, no. You? So I'll tell you, my doctor is the only one I know here who got it. He got it skiing in Vail. So he was on a ski lift. He got it. But my father, who's eighty three, and is just you know he doesn't seem like he's eighty three. He seems like he's sixty. He's young and active and all the rest. But um, he knows personally. 18 people who've died. Wow. Yeah. He's in New Orleans 
and the virus got into nursing homes and right. you know, basically yeah, yeah. older communities. And that was his crowd. And he knows 18 people who've died, which is, I mean, that's shocking. Uh, yeah. There are these pockets here. And if you happen to be near one of those pockets, you know a lot of, you know, you know, if you're in New York City, you know people who've died. Yes, you would, you would. So, and New Orleans then, is that like a, one of those pockets or is it just the, uh, the, the, the elderly uh, communities? Or? No, New Orleans was horrific. And it was horrific because of uh, Mardi Gras. They let Mardi Gras happen. It was that, that moment when it was spreading, but nobody knew. Mm-hmm. And it just exploded in New Orleans. And Louisiana, southern Louisiana generally. It's now starting to subside, but it was very like New York. It's kind of accidental where it blew up. If you were unfortunate enough to have lots of people moving through your community, group activities and people coming in from outside in that period, kind of January, February, you were at real risk. So New Orleans was just one of those places. And was Mardi Gras already at the time, was it known to be risky to do it? Was it a possibility to cancel it or...? No. Uh, You know, it goes on over actually a couple of weeks. And I think maybe towards the end of it, there was a little bit of talk, but no. So the first shutdowns in this country were here, right here in the Bay Area. And it was March the 16th. So Mardi Gras was like two weeks before that. So it would have been it would have been a radical act. We got this here as well with Carnival, right? So that's last week of of February. And now people are saying... Some people, at least, are saying, well, they right. should have, they should have, they could have, they would have canceled that. But then, uh, I don't know what, what would have happened if they actually had canceled it without any um, right. case here, right. or, or either a death, right? You, you, right. What the hell would have happened? Yeah. Mm. The problem with this problem is that if you actually do it optimally, everybody's yeah. pissed off at you. Yeah. Everybody's pissed off at you because from everybody else's point of view, you've done it too soon. Nothing happened. Yeah. There is this German virologist who who keeps saying all the time, there is no glory in prevention, he says. And and he's right. right? I think that that is totally it. Because if you do it, nobody would notice there was a problem to start with. So what did you solve? You've only caused problems. And we we now have a president of the United States (laughs) who has no interest in anything where there's no glory. Yeah. And so we have leadership that actually does its psychologically ill-equipped to deal with this problem. So anyway, what do you want to talk about? I can't remember what interested you at the moment. Well, I could talk about a lot of things. I prepared some like three topics, but I have to say I'm a poor preparer of interviews. Me, am I, and- so am I. You know, so I'm with yeah. you on that. I, li- I really like to just have a conversation and, because often you don't know what it is the person has to say that, that's going to be useful. Um, and so I know I do the same thing when I interview people, even when I'm interviewing them about something very specific. But I did want to talk a little bit about the pandemic, actually, because uh, I think I heard you speak about this. And I think you said, like, you wouldn't have written about the government if it weren't during the Obama administration, right? Because I think you explained this on several occasions that Trump, I think you literally said, electrified the topic for you. Yeah, the, 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 he did. He, right. The federal government is this amorphous, complicated, slow-moving seemingly indestructible beast, and that it feels kind of inert as material otherwise. Mm -hmm. It really took for me, Donald Trump, to see a way, I mean, it wouldn't even have occurred to me to write about it. To give you an idea, I actually did write about Obama. I went and spent kind of six months moving in and out of his life. And the thing that interested me then was what the world looks like just sitting in that seat because of all the insanity moving around him, what the job is and how you stay sane in it. But so I I spent six months in and out of Washington going to see the president. And it never once occurred to me that, oh, this big federal government Mm -hmm. is an interesting subject in and of itself. Mm -hmm. I could have done it, but I had no interest in it. What triggered my interest was a deep existential dread when Trump moved into the White House. I swear to God to you that that I, I was laying in bed watching him because I just had surgery and I was watching the Obamas standing at the top of the steps and Trump getting out of the car and leaving his wife behind and running up the steps. And I remember asking myself, how is he going to kill me? Yeah. Like, what is he going to do? Why am I feeling this way? 
And then I realized I was feeling this way. The first thing is like nukes. Like when you think president and you think risk, you think nukes. Mm-hmm. You think he's got the nuclear arsenal at his fingertips. He's going to press a button and we're all going to go up in smoke. But then I just started thinking about it a bit more. And, I, you know, it's not just nuke. It's like this portfolio of risks that I just have kind of taken for granted my entire adult life were being managed in a responsible way. I mean, that's not necessarily by the smartest people on the earth, but people who are basically doing their best and were able to draw in expertise from all parts of the society to deal with the problem. You know, it was like being in an airplane that you assume is on autopilot. All those risks just went up. And that's when I found there was this character for me who was extremely important, and his name is Max Steyer. And he is an organization in Washington called the Partnership for Public Service. Mm-hmm. And he's devoted the last almost 20 years, 15 years, to trying to fix the federal government in a nonpartisan way, like how to make it run better, because he sensed there is this erosion of the capacities of the government. And you know, at his fingertips were lots of statistics to back this up. But the one that to me was, I think, maybe the most illustrative and most shocking was that there are now five times as many people in information technology in the federal government, like running the computer systems, who are over this age of 60 <laughs> than, than under the age of 30. So what does that tell you? So it's like in the place where you would expect young people to be, because like most people over the age of 60 don't even know how to work their computer, nobody's coming to do the job. And so it was already this kind of tool that had fallen into disrepair. And then Trump comes in and takes a, like a, a sledgehammer to it in various ways. And when I found through Max that there had been this legal requirement on the part of the Obama administration to build these briefing books and these briefings so that, you know, if you're elected president and you don't know what you're doing, you send your people in and they explain what the Department of Agriculture does or they explain but what the Health and Human Services Department does. And they explain how they dealt with various problems that they, they encountered that are not, you know, Republican or Democrat problems. They're just problems. Like, you know, all of a sudden there is a a swine flu virus that's crossed over from the Mexican border that's killing all kinds of people in Mexico City. How do you respond? How do we respond to that possibility of a pandemic? And it shows you just how the mechanisms of the government work so you can run it. And when I found out that Trump had been required to have a team of hundreds of people to receive this information, but then he had not really wanted to have this team. And then the minute he was elected, he'd fired the whole team so that there was nobody there to go in and mm-hmm. understand how these risks were being managed. That gave me a way, just like a way in. And the way in was, my first thought was, I can go get the briefings. That for the reader, I will now explain why you too should be asking, how is he going to kill me? Yeah. And here's some ways. <laughs> and these people will explain it to you. And it was as dramatic as... You know, I'm trying to think when I started doing this, but it was maybe nine months after he had been in office where I'm actually getting a briefing from someone who helped manage the U.S. nuclear arsenal, (laughs) who had been prepared to give this briefing to Trump people and had never given it. And I thought, it's insane. I mean, there's clearly some value in this transfer of knowledge. And, you know, unlike your government, I mean, this is the thing that's kind of mind-boggling, I think, to anybody who's not an American citizen. And actually, American American citizens do not understand this either. Mm. That in most democracies, most of the government is run by a permanent civil service. And so the effect of moving from one leader to the next is less jarring to the affairs of state. In our country, the president is meant to appoint 4,000-something people to really run the government. So it's regarded as an administrative managerial job. And if you don't do that, you know, it's like not having people running your business. You get a real mishmash of results. The effect of not taking on the job compared to what it would be in other societies is spectacular. And so that's what got me going. I think it was made a legal requirement to write these manuals for any uh, government for the next one, right? Couldn't they make it like, obligatory that you also take to go to the, the courses. Yeah. <laughs> that only makes sense, you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, would make, it would make sense. And yeah. it would make sense, but instead of making it obligatory, you know what? I think the truth is that the people who, Max Sire was behind that legislation. Right. And the problem historically had always been that the candidates for the presidency 
feared looking like they were complacent about their victory by preparing to win. So what he wanted to do was take the pressure off them and make it a kind of a requirement for both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in the middle of the campaign to prepare to take office. Whoever won was prepared. So the point of the legislation was that no one ever imagined that a candidate wouldn't care that he wouldn't actually take an interest in being president, in running the government. So I think the reason that that wasn't ever built in was that no one ever imagined such a human being w- would be in the job, right? So who, I mean, if you think about it, no one ever thought, oh, the assumption was all these people want to prepare to run this government. That's why they're running for president. Yeah. So what you need to do is remove the stigma of preparing to run the office before you've been given the office, mm by giving people the resources to do it and sort of saying you should do it, and the rest will take care of itself. So it might be true that now is not a bad time to revisit the legislation. (laughs) But on the other hand, if the president really doesn't care and really is that obstinate about his role, even if you made him show up at the meetings, it's a little unclear how useful it would be. I mean, so some of these meetings did happen, and often when they happened, it was like the Trump people walking in and basically having nothing but attitude. You're like, you don't have anything to tell me. Let's get this over with fast. I got 20 minutes, you know, that kind of thing. So the better solution would be for the American people to elect someone to be president who actually wanted to manage the government. Right. And you actually predicted that something big like a pandemic would probably or, or could probably reignite this belief from the American people in actual functioning government, right? Well, I was asked last year, before we got into our present moment, what I thought it would take for the American people to start to notice what the president's supposed to be doing and to engage at least to the point where their representatives in both parties took the management of the government more seriously. And people saw there was this positive effect of government. And I was asked that question. And when I started to think about what the answer would be, It's not like a hurricane hitting Houston or an earthquake in California. It's not some disaster that's local because everybody thinks, oh, well, that happened to them. But I thought a pandemic might do it because, one, it affects everybody. Two, it's terrifying. And the big thing is that the elites can't avoid it. Uh, So even the investment bankers get sick and die. So everybody is all of a sudden woken up to this existential dread that I felt three years ago. So I do think that, I mean, this is playing out in a really very, in some ways predictable, but also very weird way here where our pandemic is being party politicized. We're at the very beginning of Mm -hmm. it. I mean, 100,000 people have died and Americans are kind of still, you can see them still kind of behaving as if, oh, that was it. This was a tragedy. It was so sad. They have no sense that, you know, 500,000 people might die. A million people might die. And the virus doesn't just go away. It might, but highly unlikely. Mm-hmm. So I think that the way this thing may play out, and in this case, it will open a way for Biden to talk about the government and what it does and what it should do and how we need to engage with it. Sell it, to sell it as a positive tool. If I were outside of America looking at the way America is handling this, I'd be bewildered. Um, it's a problem like a war that is naturally centralized. You know, mm-hmm. if, yeah. if, the, if Russia invaded the United States the president wouldn't be saying, go on, governors, get your raising army and see what you can do about this. Montana, if you want to talk to South Dakota about coordinating forces, go ahead. Yeah. You wouldn't do that. But that's what he's done. Yeah. He said, basically, I got no responsibility for this. And that that's one big reason, maybe the big reason, why we have 100,000 deaths. We're, what, 4%, 4 something percent of the world's population, mm-hmm. and we have something like 27 or 28% of the deaths. Yeah. Um, We're supposed to be the most sophisticated, you know, data-drenched scientific establishment in the world. I mean, in many ways, we have, we have the best tools of anybody. You have invented the term data scientist, right? Yeah. <laughs> we've, in, we've invented the term data science. Yeah. We have mm-hmm. a very sophisticated medical scientific establishment. The analogy I keep coming back to is like, we are a team filled with all these talented players that has a really crappy coach. Just like, it's just like a coach who has managed to take lots of talent and turn it into a, the worst team in the league. And it's almost hard to do. It's funny, you, the sport, and then everybody's like, which sport could you do that in? It'd be hard to do that in basketball or baseball, but in, in football, 
In American football, yeah. you could you could do that because strategy is so important that you could actually screw it up so badly that uh, the most talented team loses. So he's like a really bad football coach. People don't like to change their political opinions. And you can see that his support has not quite collapsed yet. No. But when all of a sudden people are dying around you, you start to, you know. Yeah. There are other narratives can start to pop into your head. So I think that if anything is going to change the American society's attitude towards its own government, it's this. There's a good test. If this doesn't do it, Mm -hmm. the only other thing would be like a world war. But if this doesn't do it, it's hard to imagine what would do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was thinking, I mean, I've been reading this piece you wrote back in 1990 for the New York Times. You reviewed... I think the, at the time the latest Trump biography. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> I never. It, what did I it say? Makes for, for, <laughs> it makes for hilarious reading because. So I'm going to quote you here on this this this, this passage just just briefly. You wrote, "Trump has come to believe that if he nurtures his fame, his business will follow. Success," he writes, "so often it's just a matter of perception." And you know he could spin this. Uh, I think in in the very same way in his advantage. I mean. So, for example, I think the most dramatic forecast of death in the United States was something like two and a half million. Right. And you probably won't get there. So, so anything below two million could be, could be framed as a huge success. And I think even Jared Kushner is already doing this, isn't he? I don't doubt that, um, that they'll try to do that. I do doubt they'll be successful. And partly because there's so right. much of Trump on tape that you can glue together in, poli- in political <laughs> advertisements, saying that nobody's going to die, saying that this is a hoax, saying all that stuff he said, that I don't think Americans are going to buy it's a success if two million Americans die. I just don't think... That. Now, now what he will do is lie and say two million people didn't die. But the problem is, you know, you have the bodies. Right. And everybody will have seen a body at some point. They, they will know, you know... Take, a, take the reddest of red America, if you're in, I don't know, Oklahoma City. You may really like Trump. You may only watch Fox News. But you will know a few people who died, and you can't deny it. You will also know that Oklahoma City is some minuscule fraction of America, right. and you will be able to make that crude calculation that, yeah, probably that many people died. So it's just going to be really hard to deny the death. So I don't doubt, of course, this is what he's going to do. This is what he's always done. He's always, after the fact, he makes up a story. And the story, mm-hmm. the story that can have almost no facts in it that are true. But he believes the story at some level. He sort of like becomes very convinced about his own story. There's that great line that the best con men believe their own con. And he gets himself right. into a state where he's, you know, from everybody else's perspective who knows anything, he's just lying through his teeth. But for him, it becomes the story. Um, Mm -hmm. and he'll tell that story. And the story about this will be, first, they're lying about how many people died, not many people died. Second, I did a great job because all these people were supposed to die, and they didn't die. Third, somehow, some way, the Democrats or the people in the blue states obstructed my ability to deal with the problem. That You know, you 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 already imagine what he's going to say, but it's Uh the thing is now... The difference in the, the fear of Donald Trump and the worry about the effect that he has is much greater now than it was four years ago. He kind of took a lot of people by surprise and that nobody really thought he was ever going to win. Now you have Michael Bloomberg sitting there with $50 billion willing to spend half of it on political ads. And, it, and not just Michael Bloomberg. You have big, rich, powerful people on the other side who, who have the capacity to get the truth out. Yeah. And it's bipartisan in, in a lot of ways. I mean, there's a big faction of Republicans who are... It's, so it's, I think that those ads will hit right. land hard. I, I think they'll have a big effect. And they'll air on a loop in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan and Florida. And, you know, the, I won't be seeing these ads in California. That they'll be, but, the, but, the, but there won't be a person in Wisconsin who no. won't have seen them 10 times. So there are two questions here, right? One is, is this going to knock Trump out of the Oval Office. But the second is, even if it does, does it create a mindset in this country where we are one country, we've got to attack this problem as one country. We need to be managed, coached like a team, like we're all part of the same team, rather than we're two Mm -hmm. teams fighting each other all the time. And you see that possible, right? I do think it's possible, yes. I mean, 
We are a very weird society. We do, we shapeshift, right? We bounce in all kinds of strange ways. So I do think it's totally possible. And all right. in the same way, you know, you got to remember that like, it wasn't that long ago, we just elected a black man to be president of the United States. I mean, who saw that coming? It's it, true. To me, yeah. this whole um, event mm-hmm. has been a very powerful uh it's been very powerful evidence of the importance of leadership. It's just the difference between a good leader and a bad leader. It's amazing. Um, I don't know if Biden has it in him. I hope he does. But if he doesn't, maybe he has a vice president who has it in him or her. Right. I mean, but yeah. maybe there will be a voice will emerge that's basically unifying the country from Washington that people will attend to. Anyway, I don't feel hopeless. Yeah. If you're trying to get me, right. if you're trying to get me to feel hopeless, you're not going to succeed. <laughs> I don't, I don't feel <laughs> No, no, because you're right, of course. I mean, they did elect Obama twice even, all right? And uh, I was thinking about this. Has there been like some kind of lesson learned by the relevant people of how it was even possible that... I mean, he was a guy who... who, who I think you write this even in The Fifth Risk, right? That he, he didn't actually really want no. the job. No, oh, he clearly didn't want the no. job. He was, so he, how could you... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to explain, right? Because he gets away with stuff that no other politician right. away with. So what he, what he revealed is just how disturbed the country is and how angry the country is. So I think everybody knew that there was a yeah. divide and there was anger and the anger is a result of lots of things, but growing inequality is at its core, I think. Or you want to put it a different way. Feelings of loss of status uh, is at its core and that the people who are angry you could, they're almost all people whose status has been threatened. White yeah. guys. Just being a white guy used to be a bigger deal than it, than it is now. And when you start to just take white guyness away as a status marker, as a, as a source of status, white guys get pissed off. Now, if you combine that with falling or stagnant income, you get a really angry white guy. I think what Trump did is he revealed the extent of those emotions. And it was a revelation. But he also revealed structural flaws in the system. Like a candidate that loses by three million votes shouldn't be the president. This is true. And so there's this kind of, it just so happens, and it's an accident, that the angry white guys are concentrated in areas with disproportionate political influence. Their vote matters more than the votes of, yeah. So um, in this weird electoral college system, (laughs) if it was just majority wins, you'd have a completely different political environment. All of a sudden, like California would matter a lot. And so it revealed that. And I think that there's a big chunk of the country that doesn't want to talk about politics, that just wants to talk about how you make money, and has spent their whole lives ignoring the political process, except to intercede when they needed some small favor in Washington. (laughs) But who basically thought, who basically thought, ah, politicians are all stupid, and it's such a waste of life, and I don't want to think about it, and I certainly don't want to get in a fight with anybody about it, because it's just not good for business. Mm -hmm. All those people are now being forced to reevaluate their complacency, because, because they see the effect. So that silent, but very powerful sort of side of America, especially American business leadership, I think is going to show up in a way it didn't show up Um, because they were so surprised. They didn't think this kind of thing could happen. Right. So you said you couldn't really talk yet about the book you were about to write on the pandemic, right? It's it's, it's like a rule I have. You just, it's really a bad idea to talk about the books before they're written. And it screws me up in how I do it because sometimes it changes in the middle of the thing and I get wetted and attached. So I'm not going to talk about it. I'll tell you this about it, that I've promised my publisher that I would deliver a manuscript by middle of next summer. So probably be out end of next summer, early next fall. Yeah. So more generally, because I was reading these columns, and uh, Joe DeRisi, or how do I pronounce his name? Is, is, that, is that what it is? Joe DeRisi? Yeah. Yeah, he, he sounded like your typical, <laughs> I would almost say, Louisian character. So this, this, so that this was very, t- that's very shrewd of you, because he is. I'll tell you about him. He's such a character for me that I met him three years ago because someone who I knew didn't knew in passing, but who had read a bunch of my books said, I know this guy who I know you're going to want to write about. <laughs> and so you ought to just go see him. And he was so insistent. And the position was so odd. He was head of the newly formed Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. 
where he was supposed to be eradicating all disease by the end of the 21st century. But I didn't know anything else about him. But I went to go see him and found that there was this guy who, he's a microbiologist, I think is what he calls himself. But basically, he's a virus hunter, but not just in people, but in animals. Mm-hmm. And he's so clever and curious and interesting and successful that by the time I met him, he really was the guy who, if you were anywhere in the world and you had some mysterious thing that was just killing you and the medical establishment could not identify what it was, you kind of ended up in his office and he had solved many, many medical mysteries. So anyway, what I say is I met him and I thought, God, I love the guy. I love the guy and he's a great character. He's really interesting, but why is anybody going to read about this? I had no sense of what, what to do with him. So I opened a little manila folder that I do on people when I'm interested in them and just shoved it off into the stack of manila folders where I have everything that I may or may not do and thought, well, I hope I have a chance to write about him one day. And now the day has come. So he's a great character. I can't tell you for sure he's going to be in my book, but he's definitely in my Bloomberg columns and he will be for a while. I mean, I think of him as... We are in a mess here because of how we screwed up the testing for the virus. But basically, we're in a position where we need to become really smart in how you hunt the virus. Find out not just where it is and who has it in any given moment, but how it's moving from person to person. Because if you can figure out, if you can sort of evaluate the risk of various social situations, so the risk of taking an Uber versus the risk of going into a dinner party at a friend's house versus, you know, there are all these different um, things you're going to be asked sort of intuitively to evaluate the risk of that you have no ability to evaluate the risk. Mm-hmm. The go- there's, a, there's a role for the government or for public health people to come in and say, no, it's too risky. You're not allowed to go to an Oakland A's baseball game with 30,000 other people. We know that that's risky, and so we don't, we don't let you do that. But, but you can get in the back of an Uber as long as you're wearing a mask. But we need, basically, someone making those calculations. And Joe DeRisi has the tools to make those calculations. That's the only way we're going to function without just being in total lockdown, pre-vaccine. And maybe even post-vaccine, since half the country just says it doesn't want to take a vaccine. So it's (laughs) really, really important work he's doing. And as you noticed, uh, I, I, I can only do so much in a Bloomberg column. But just as a character, he's just great. He's just great. Um... So, because I've been rereading the new, new thing, so like three weeks ago or something, and there was this line, this, um, so Jim Clark, yep. he, was, he was writing to some of the, uh, the, I think, Kleiner Perkins or some of the other venture capitalists. Yep. And he wrote, I'm interested in finding bright people with a passion to change the way things are. That was the end of this, uh, of this uh, so that was in a different context. But, yep. but I thought, like, in essence, isn't this like the blueprint of any leading character of, uh, of your books? Because you could almost attach them to, to so lots let, of them. So, mean, so let me think yeah. about that. It's true that that describes the leading characters in some of the books. Certainly Flash Boys, certainly The New New Thing, kind of but not really The Fifth Risk. It doesn't really describe The Big Short because I, I, it's unclear to what extent any of these people true. wanted to change the way things are. They were trying to make a fortune out of, uh, out of the idiocy of the way things were. Um, it, it doesn't particularly describe liars poker. Billy. So Moneyball. Did Billy Bean want to change the way things were in sports? No. He would have loved for them to stay to say as dumb as they were. <laughs> so it, so some of my characters are simply just exploiting the way things are. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So, uh, but it is true that many of them, including me in Liars Poker, occupy a uncomfortable relationship with the way things are, that they aren't just, ah, everything's okay. They're all aware that something is wrong. Mm. And now how they respond to that depends on the character and depends on the situation. I mean, I'm just thinking about why that is. Um, It probably reflects some deep sense in me that things aren't quite as they should be. But it, uh-huh. may res- it may be more an indication of how lazy I am as a writer in that if you have a character who is essentially disruptive in some way in his environment, right. that it is easy to describe that character, but also it makes it easier to describe the environment because he's mucking around with it in various ways. Mm-hmm. So I think it's true I'm attracted to those characters. 
Yeah, actually, the, the, of course. So, so, so I'm wrong, uh, and you're right. In the analysis of your own work. You know, I think, I think, <laughs> but I think, the, I think the broader point is, it, it may be true with writers that you can go through their work and find patterns after the fact in the book, in the different things they've written. Mm. But I can tell you just from my felt experiences, though I do, as I said, like to have, feel like I have a reason why I'm the one to write a story or I'm the one to write a book. I don't think I want to write the same book over and over again. I think I, each one feels, has to be feel very different to me. And so I'm not looking, I don't have a formula. I'm not thinking, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, oh, that worked. I'm going to do that over and over and over again. Just the opposite. I think it's not worth doing if it doesn't feel like something new. Now, I may be deluding myself, but I, I at least f I feel that way. So it would be odd if all the books basically could be understood yeah. with a single, unlocked with a single key. Uh, let me put it differently then. You do like or you do feel the need to have a character to, ah. to be like a vehicle for the idea. So this rather is, than, yes. for example, Ma Malcolm Gladwell doesn't really need people. Uh, he can do it himself. Almost, right? I'm going to say, when I hang up yeah. from this, I'm going to send him an email saying just that. That's very funny. <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell doesn't really need people. Um, <laughs> it, it's, Harsh, it's, but, uh, yeah. it's, no, it's, but it's true. It's true. Malcolm is his character. He's, he's kind of his own character. And mm -hmm. um, it's also true that I am much happier. It's just more fun for me to find characters who are vehicles. So that's totally right. And I've also found, I mean, it's just what I found has worked and what I like doing, um, that if I can attach a reader to a, a person on the page, that character will take the reader all kinds of places. I would find it very hard to take them myself. It's sort of like you can infect the reader with the character's passions and make the character's passions the reader's passions, or at least the reader's yeah. deep interests. And that lets you do all kinds of stuff that is just really not obvious and gets people to want to understand things they might not know they wanted to understand. Whereas mm -hmm. I find, you know, I do write other things, and especially in shorter form stuff that looks like essays. And mm -hmm. those have their purpose, but they aren't where I live. And if I find myself in one of my books hitting this mode where I've kind of left a character and it's just me... I get less interested in writing it. And I assume the reader yeah. gets inter less interested in reading it. So that's totally true. I move through the world hunting characters. Well, hence Joe DeRisi, right? I just went to go see him, and I was just mourning the fact that he was this wonderful character, but I didn't have a situation for him. I, wasn't, I, I, did, <laughs> yeah. I didn't have yeah. a place to put him. So I put yeah. him on my shelf, and mm. now I got a place to put him. Right. And so um, do characters always lead to topics or do topics lead to characters? So, for example, if you were... That's a great question. That's a great question. Let me just think for a second, but I think both. So let me, let's just take the specific examples. The big short, the topic led me to the characters. I wasn't going to write a book about the financial crisis. I wasn't going to write a book about anything without characters. So in that sense, the characters always lead it. But I did think... I really like to write something about this financial crisis. It touches, it feels like a, almost the, the sequel to, the, to Liar's Poker. And that, when I started kicking around, I found the characters. So that, that's probably a slightly more common thing for me, is that the, I'm kind of thinking of an environment or a situation or a topic, and then I find the character in the place. But I'm trying to think if the opposite has happened, where I found this person, this character, and I just follow them where they went. So the answer to that is I, not in book form yet. I think that's tr not in book form yet, but I've done magazine pieces where about around a person, long, very long magazine pieces, where it was, I didn't care about the topic except for the character. And so I'll give for you example. Mike Leach. Yeah. Mike Leach was the oh, yeah. football coach at Texas Tech. He's now the football coach at Mississippi State. And I've not given up on him as a, as a character. I was just interested in the character. <laughs> He's competing in this insane world of, of American college football. And he himself has never played. He was a Mormon law professor who just thought it would be fun to coach football instead and starts out, you know, coaching in a high school and then in a small college and then in Finland. And, and he has all these wacky ideas about how you do things that are completely different from everybody else. And I didn't want to write about college football. 
I heard about him and I want to write about him. It does happen. It totally does happen. Right. I thought that was some, some kind of spin-off from the, the blind side, right? You're interested in, in, in football for, for some reason, but that was, so that was a part. It was... It because pro- it was around the same yeah, time yeah, you wrote about No, it, was, it yeah. was closer to... I published Moneyball in 2003 and the blind side in like 2006. And after Moneyball... All kinds of stories started to walk into my life. Agents would call me up. The reason I found out about Mike Leach was his agent and I worked together at Solomon Brothers. And his agent got my phone number and said, you probably don't even want to write about it. I just want to tell you, I have one client. I have, you know, he represents 50 college football coaches. He said, I have one client who is just not like any of the others. And you just need to hear, you just need to hear about this guy. And so that that's... That's how I found out about him. And that was before The Blind Side. So Moneyball led me to lots of different sports stories. It's still leading me to sports stories because people think to let me know about it. So I would say as another example of characters leading me to a topic was Flash Boys. Because in fact, I was actively hostile to the idea of writing anything about Wall Street again mm. after The Big Short. I thought, I was just, I'm done with it. I was so sick of it. And I met these people who were on Wall Street who had decided in a very seditious way to try to reform Wall Street from within. And, uh, and they interested me, and they made me interested in the topic. So that's mm-hmm. an example of the people leading me to a subject, and that's, that's a good case of a book being driven by yeah. char- characters. I was asking this because many people, uh, when discussing, for example, your work, they're saying like, oh, wouldn't we want to read a Michael Lewis on climate change? Yeah, but you, that's so a, it's figuring. funny. You know, it's funny. I've had people tell me, you know, you can fill in the blanks there, right? I'd love to read mm-hmm. you on X or Y. And they don't understand right. that I can't do that. You know, no. Malcolm Gladwell could do that. If Malcolm Gladwell decides to write about climate change, he'll write an interesting book about climate change. And all he'll need is the subject. Yeah. And my daughter, my own daughter, my oldest child's 21 and she's a college sophomore and is obsessed rightly with climate change. And she keeps saying, Dad you really kind of like have to write a book about climate change. And I said, fine, but what's the book? Like, I know that what I read in the newspapers, and just like you know what you read in the newspapers, how am I going to electrify the material and make this like something other than what everybody knows? And I'd have to find the person to write it through, or people. And so, and I, I haven't. And I haven't spent a lot of time looking, but I do pay attention, and I haven't seen a way to do it. But it is a topic you actively... Seeks I know, nuts. It isn't so much that I actually see it, but I know it's a really important topic. And yeah. so, if I could find a way to write a story about it that I thought would make a difference and that would mm-hmm. interest me, I'd totally do it. Sometimes you have the issue of is this subject even worth writing about? That's how I felt about Joe DeRisi when I met him. Like infectious disease. Well, I guess <laughs> I, sh- I should care, but it doesn't feel like present in my life. And right. so, uh, climate change isn't that way. Climate change is something that it's very hard to dramatize, right? That's the problem. I think so. Yeah. 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 Until until it's too late, and then it's very easy to dramatize. <laughs> um, but, but but it's it's uh, so the answer is I haven't actively really gone looking for how to write the book, but I'm open to mm-hmm. it. There are other subjects like that that I'm open to it, but I just don't have a way to do it. I just can't go write a book about climate change. No one would care. No. 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 Right. Mm, well, I'm not so sure about that one, but I see the point. Right. Yeah, because you want to do it in a way that works for you, right? So and, that you can... and it adds something. Yeah. It, feel, it feels like, yeah. well, it, it's just not repeating what you're hearing every day. Mm-hmm. The other test I have for the books is, is this something that 50 years from now someone might pick up and read with pleasure? Does it pass that test? Or is it totally dependent on the moment? Again, that takes you right to character. When the characters jump off the page, you can imagine people reading it forever. Yeah. Yeah. Good bridge, or how do you say this, to the other topic I wanted to talk about. So the coaching thing. Yeah. Um, and the other book that I heard you mention uh, that you were writing, and maybe I'm not sure whether you're still doing it because the pandemic has intervened, but I think you were writing on a, a book on youth sports in America and so, the, the God, professionalization of it, right? So yeah. this is interesting. Yes, you have to be here to appreciate just how crazy kids sports has gotten. It's so yeah. much closer to the center of people's lives than politics. And politics seems crazy. If you want to see yeah. people get really crazy, go to some place where they're watching their kids play something. Uh, it, <laughs> ma- it makes like the, the problems between Democrats and Republicans seem trivial. <laughs> and, and, and the expense so that you've got 
youth sports in America, the business is bigger than all the professional sports combined in terms of the dollars spent by American consumers. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the data off the top of my head, but some huge percentage of people whose kids are playing serious youth sports have either taken out a bank loan, gone into debt of some sort, changed their lifestyles in order to afford it. It's no longer local. My daughter, who's a serious softball player, spent, I don't know, 37 nights in hotel rooms last year. If you just looked at her itinerary, if I gave you just where my daughter was during the year, she's 16 years old, And I said, who do you think this person is? You would guess they were a traveling salesman for a big American company. Uh, (laughs) That she's on the East, she's all over the world, all over the country, kind of unnecessarily. There's a reason why this has happened. I wrote the book. I wrote would be about half the book, just for Audible as an audio book. And then the pandemic happened. Mm. And I tell you, I wrote the book in my, and several people have read it, said this might be the best thing you've ever written. So I knew it didn't suck. It works. And the material really works. So I wrote it, the pandemic happens, Audible shuts down, and so we're just coming back. I have to record it for Audible. I have to go read it. So I'm going to read it week after next, and I think they're bringing it out in August, September. So you will see that, you'll hear that. Because I've gotten swept up in this pandemic story, I think what I'm going to do is delay the the book book of this because it's going to require another six months of work right. and come back to it in a year. All right, so the Audible version is done. Done. You only need to read it. Okay. I only need to read it. It's done. It's been done since January. That will be available soon. All right. And the podcast is what's coming out now, which has become very dear to my heart. It's been totally fun to do. Yeah. It's a completely different experience than the book experience. It's a bigger market for starters. That the number of people who will listen to one of the podcasts is kind of double the number of people who will read even the most popular of my books. And, wow. And, yeah, which is amazing because it's new. And you get people in a different state of mind. And you could tell different kinds of stories. They're stories that I don't think I've, with one exception, I've done 14 episodes now, two seasons of seven episodes each. They're not all out yet, but I've done them. And I think only one of them would work as a piece of writing. Then none of them did I say, oh, I really should write this instead. It was something, it was a story that was really easy to tell in a long form audio way but not easy to tell in a long-form piece of writing. So there was no overlap. I didn't feel like, oh, this is stuff I'm wasting on a podcast because I should be writing it. It was like a different muscle, a different thing. And this season is about coaches. Last season was about referees. The, The basic idea was, I had two ideas. One was you can look at American life, not just American life, but American life especially, through a very peculiar lens what's happened to various authority figures in it. There are authority figures whose status has been very volatile. So the first season was about referees in various forms. And referees have been on the decline and under attack in all kinds of ways. You see this now. Trump's firing all the referees in government. The second season is about coaches. And coaches have been on the rise in all kinds of dramatic ways. I think partly in response to the collapse of the ref, that people feel they're in a raw and raw competitive environment and they're looking for any edge that huh. you, any edge you can get. And a coach gives you an edge. And, and coaching has gotten better. But anyway, the, the idea was, and I'm still stewing on it, was I thought I was going to do seven seasons of seven episodes each. Each season was going to be about a character who is inside the arena. So inside of any sports arena in the world, you'll find the referee, you'll find the coach. But there are five other characters that interest me. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'm going to stay in the arena, but I'm going to try. And I'm doing it with Malcolm. I mean, Malcolm Gladwell is one of my editors. It's a total gas. <laughs> hey, and you've been a coach yourself, right? I think for all your three kids. Yes. Uh, yeah, many, many, yeah. many, many, many teams. Yes. It's been, yeah, yeah, it, it was a wonderful way to get to know your own children and for them to get to know you with all your flaws. When they are on the receiving end of your competitive ambition for them, they really do know you in the worst possible way, but it's good, it's good they do. And they still like you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, and they, I know they like the real me because they've seen the horrible sides. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so, so I think you once mentioned this in this, one of these, these, these interviews you gave, is that your work on Kahneman and Tversky influenced the way you coached. You gave, you gave, I think you gave, in the way you gave feedback, right? I had two big intrusions into my coaching life while I was coaching the kids. So I stopped coaching a year and a half ago. My 
the youngest is 13 years old and he outgrew me on the basketball court. And so he, no one wants me anymore. But, but when they wanted me, I came in with a certain attitude towards the job that was basically rooted in my own childhood experience of sports and my own coaches who I'd had. Two things happened that I included along the way. One was improvisational comedy. I went to and did a, just for other reasons, a workshop at Second City in Chicago, which is the great improv center of, um, in America, and it's generated all these comic talents. And um, the drills they put people through, though they're designed to generate an improvisational comedian, are actually superb drills for building a team and for people getting to know each other. And so on all my teams, I made them all, we all did improvisational comedy drills during the practice. We'd have, we'd break a pra- practice down, you know, f- for 10 minutes each practice and just do one of these drills. And it had all kinds of wonderful effects on the, on the teams and on the kids. The second thing was Kahneman Tversky. Danny, it's one thing Danny Kahneman pointed out to me from his own experience as a psychologist working with the Israeli Air Force back in the 1960s. Yeah. He was helping the people who trained Israeli fighter pilots to train them better. Of course, these people who are training the Israeli fighter pilots thought that the Israeli psychologist was all bullshit. Like, why is he here? But they let him watch. And the trainers, to a man, took the view that it was pointless to praise the pilots when they did something well. And important just to kind of yell at them and criticize them when they screwed up. And they said to Danny, we've learned this because we've learned that when we praise them, when they do something especially great and we give them praise, inevitably they like, after the next thing they do is worse. And on the other side, when they do something really shitty and we jump on them, we've seen they get better. And Danny says, there's this statistical idea called regression to the mean, that anytime anybody does something great, the next thing they do is likely to be worse. And anytime anybody does something especially bad, the next thing they're going to do is likely to be better, no matter what you say. And what you're doing is just being tricked by that illusion. And you're being fooled into thinking that your criticism works, but your praise doesn't. And uh, and he pointed out further that life tricks us into this state of mind where we're relentlessly inflicting pain on people thinking it's doing them some good. And I realized that the worst side of my coaching strategy was that thinking that criticism had an effect that it didn't actually have and praise didn't have an effect that it actually might have. And that I started to just flip how I coached. And, and essentially the trick to me was to couch all criticism as praise with every now and then an exception, but mostly that. It was sort of like, how do you frame the criticism so it sounds like praise? And... Um, or it feels to the person receiving it that, well, maybe there's some criticism in there, but overall I feel very warm about that message I just got. Um, so, because mm. at the very least I thought, maybe nothing I'm saying has any effect at all. Why like make people miserable? Why inflict any unhappiness here? It really had an effect. And the words that came out of my mouth and my general demeanor. So how does that square up to the coaching you receive excellent, yourself from excellent. Billy Fitzgerald yes, yes, as well as Michael Kinsley? I mean, you mentioned this on the Tim Ferriss podcast. I listened to that. There was two things. So Kinsley was harsh towards you and made you a better writer, as well as so, Billy Fitzgerald, who made you the writer. Yeah. So this is absolutely <laughs> true. And mm. I'm not so dim that I didn't think about this myself. Because, <laughs> uh, but... Um, <laughs> So there are kind of two answers to this. The shallow one is that when I was coaching, I was coaching really little kids. I mean, they were ages eight to 12. Or, so mm-hmm. it's a different thing coaching those kids than coaching older people. But, but when I was being coached by Michael Kinsley and Billy Fitzgerald, I was the age of an Israeli fighter pilot. So, uh, you know, it still applies. I think the answer is, when I thought about it, I thought the answer actually is, and you can hear it in the story. I never really have written the story about Michael Kinsley. But in the episode of the podcast about Coach Fitzgerald, even though there is criticism there, and even though he's putting you through something hard, it's all in the context of something that is incredibly sort of positive in the sense that you feel like this great guy, this great man cares about you. 
And in a way, the criticism lands is it's flattering he cares enough to do this. It, uh, I think because I never felt torn down. I always felt even when he was shouting at me, I felt built up by it. So his tri- yeah. his trick, which with an older group of kids, if I was coaching him, you could pull it off. I think it'd be hard to do with 10 year olds. But with a 14 or 15 year old boy, it's not that hard to do. That you create this context in which him paying attention to you is an honor. And you experience it as an honor, even when what's coming through is the specific words are a criticism. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't ever tearing people down. And he wasn't micromanaging in that in the way the Israeli pilot trainers were. He wasn't like, oh, that pitch sucked, you know, do better. When he was spoke, to, he was always at about a body of work that it was more general. It, right. So it's more seeming contradictory than it's actually contradictory. Okay, clear. Yeah. In this episode with Coach Fitz, there is this brief interlude where you say, writing is hard to predict. Either they get what you mean or they don't. So I was just wondering, So I think it's a story well told that liar's poker was badly understood yep. by a large chunk of young men, uh, presumably. Uh, is there any other book of your books that you think is misunderstood or wrongly interpreted? Flash Boys comes to mind just because there was actually a political campaign backed by millions of dollars, um, launched to attack it by the industry that it threatened, the high-frequency trading groups yeah. and, the, and the exchanges. So they muddied the mess, the kind of technical message, but I didn't feel like readers generally missed it. I feel like with almost everything, the response of the reader is very particular to the reader. And, um, and so that I don't feel broadly misunderstood. I do feel that often surprised by what people read. Uh, and I also feel, I'm trying to think, I, I've been surprised by what people pay attention to and what they don't. Like what you can get people's attention for and what you can't. Not all the time, but um, I'm trying to think of a piece of writing where I thought, wow, I thought people were going to really notice that and care about it, and they didn't. And if you gave me a minute, I'd think of one, because I, ha- I know the feeling. But the point is, it's a complicated thing, putting something on a piece of paper and having someone else read it, and without any kind of tone. So doing the podcast actually teaches you this, how powerful tone is, that you can change the meaning of a sentence seven different ways just by the way you read it. Mm-hmm. And you assume, when you write something, that the reader is hearing it in the tone of voice you wrote it. And they hear it in the tone of voice they read it. And so you, ne- you never quite know how, if you, you, it's crazy making to spend a lot of time worrying about it, but I think it's useful to be aware that, like, they may not hear this the right way. And if you try to muscle a reader around and make them grab them and say, you got to understand it in this way, they rebel. They're bored. They don't want anything to do with it. That the reason they interact with it in the first place is they have some discretion about how they interpret it. That's kind of what I meant by that. Did you ever have regrets of writing something? Yes. Not huge regrets. I wrote a piece about Warren Buffett in the New Republic that I actually, in a backhanded way, later apologized for in a review of a book about Warren Buffett in the same New Republic. <laughs> both were covers of the New Republic. I, I regret it because I basically admire him. And I was basically going after him then. And I felt like it isn't that what I said was not true. It was that it was only part of the story. So I remember I felt kind of bad about that after the fact, long after the fact. Every writer has had these embarrassing moments. I once wrote a piece that I thought was very clever, attacking the foreign policy establishment in the New Republic. Um, there's a theme here. The things, there are things I, in the New Republic I regret because I was writing things very fast and you were, in, you were encouraged to be outlandish. But I wrote a piece attacking like, the people who work for foreign affairs, that kind of, those kind of crowd. Oh, yeah, I know that piece. And, yeah. and What's wrong with that? Yeah. I confused World War I and World War II, which you really shouldn't, oh, that's a big which thing. You really yeah. shouldn't do if you're trying to make fun of people who make their living by drawing lessons from World War I and World War II. And Fareed Zakaria wrote one of the most damaging letters I've ever received. It was very funny, and I knew him. He says, Michael's a charming writer, but he really ought to figure out the difference between World War I and World War II. It wasn't quite as stark as that, but I re- it was a piece of... Anyway, so there are errors I've made that I regret. They're not a huge number of them. And I don't actually look back and say, wow, I wish I hadn't written that or I hadn't written that. Mostly, I, mm. mostly 
I, I move on and I don't even think about what I've written. There are not a lot of examples of it. Sometimes, if you look closely, they mentioned this, the Vos column you once wrote about the, uh, the derivatives at the time. Where there were people in Davos warning oh, for financial oh, yeah. instability. Oh, 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 in, da in Davos. Oh, so that was, that's funny because I never regretted writing that uh, because okay. that was really about just the pomposity of people at Davos. The point is not that they were, in, in that particular case, right or wrong about the derivatives problem, is that every year they had some horrible thing that they were warning people about. And there's this whole market for doom that they feed into and then no one ever calls them on it. And it was all about, I, so I... I kind of, I still like that piece. If you're asking me, are there things that I've written that I would remove uh, from the public record to make it harder for me to be attacked? That might be one, just because anybody who wants to go after me, it's fun to pick that up. But if you really read it, I don't think you'd read it as, oh, he's saying the derivatives are okay. It's more- No, that, no, no. Yeah. So at the same time, I was writing that seat collateralized debt obligations and credit default swaps maybe shouldn't exist. It was more poking fun of pomposity, right? I think Davos generally is like a bad idea. Finally, uh, Underdogs, the sequel to Moneyball. Oh. Will, will that be written? No, Moneyball ate it. Um, I, I didn't expect Moneyball to blow up in quite the way it did. And a lot of what that was going to be about was where the Moneyball phenomenon went. And it went there so loudly and publicly that there was no point. That's a case where I had characters who I really liked, these players that the Oakland A's had drafted. And I spent a year and a half, maybe two years, maybe actually even more than that, going into the minor leagues and following them around and getting to know them. And they were washed away because the things I wanted to do with them, there was no point in doing. Everybody knew it already. Uh, too many people were following that story. It felt stale. Um, yeah. So, no, I'm not, I, don't, I don't think I'm ever going to write it. You've been listening to a production by The Correspondent by me, Jaco Prantl. If you'd like to support our journalism, go to thecorrespondent.com slash join. Thank you very much.